Hello friends and welcome or welcome back to the Overview Effect with James Perrin, the podcast all about having big picture conversations with inspirational people on the topics of nature, humanity and all things good. I'm your host James Perrin and I want to start by acknowledging that this podcast was recorded on Bundjalung country and I want to acknowledge and pay respects to the Iraqi people of Bundjalung nation as the traditional custodians of this land on which this episode was recorded and produced. So here we are, I'm about just over 20 episodes into this show, I'm loving it and most of my episodes have been long form, intimate, one-on-one conversations which I love. It's totally the purpose of what I'm trying to do. And I've also loved bringing you some live conversations recently as part of RenewFest's Resilience and Regeneration Roadshow. And I'm really pleased to share that I'll be be bringing you... I will be bringing you more episodes in this live format because I'll be hosting all of the live conversations with headline speakers at RenewFest in May this year. So if you are in the Northern Rivers in May this year, please head online and check out RenewFest because it is going to be an epic weekend of systems change and regenerative thinking and deep listening and connection and it's going to be epic. So head online and check out RenewFest. But today's episode takes another new format. What? Yes, Today's episode has shorter interviews with seven different guests who are all working towards similar goals around reconnecting and reinventing our food system. Now let me start by asking, do you eat food? And if you do, do you care where your food comes from, how it was grown and who grows it? If the answer is yes, and of course it is, then this is the episode for you. Because today's episode was recorded during the National Sustainable Living Festival's Great Local Lunch, where I had the absolute pleasure to join a bunch of legends who are reinventing and reimagining what our food system could and should look like. It's such an interesting cast of characters, and they are all at the pointy end of regenerative farming, wild foods, native ingredients, and our future food systems. Super exciting, these conversations today. Now, I recorded all of these chats whilst Costa, you know Costa from Gardening Australia, was hosting a live production set in the background. So there is a whole bunch of background noise, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on, but it actually really adds to the vibe and the feeling from the day. It was really fun. So in this episode, you'll hear firstly from Marie Lowe's and Charlie Arnott, who are the co-hosts of a new Impact production called Eat Dirt, which starts with the premise that we have only 60 years of topsoil remaining, and they aim to use storytelling to connect and reconnect people to their food. You'll then hear from Peter Hardwick, who's a wild food researcher and forager who has spent his entire career learning the wild origins of our food, and he really speaks to how we limit ourselves from the enormity of edible plants out there that we don't regard as food, just sheerly due to our societal and cultural norms. You know, plants that grow without fertilizer, without irrigation, and resistant to pests and diseases. And he shares all these exciting ideas about what these wild foods could do to help regenerate our environment. You'll then hear from from Blair Beattie, who's the co-owner of Harvest Nuri Bar, And he's also working to bring Farmer's Footprint to Australia. And we talk about how Blair is kind of like the glue, in a way, working to connect people and consumers to the growers and our food system in meaningful ways. Blair's also really good for an expletive-filled rant, so keep your ears out for that. Uh, I then speak to Joel Orchard, who is a first-generation small-scale farmer, and he's also the co-founder and chair of Young Farmers Connect which is really all about bringing together a community of a new generation of people that want to connect with and work with the land and our food system. He's building this community of people that are choosing to be custodians of our food system. I then speak to Jacob Birch, who's an Aboriginal man and researcher at Southern Cross University. And Jacob's exploring the nutrient profile of native grains And he also explains the cultural and ethical challenges of commercializing these products. 
He really highlights the importance of having native people involved in the growing and selling of our native ingredients, lest we extract and commoditize the ingredients at the detriment to our traditional custodians. And finally, I speak to Venetia Scott, who's a new farmer working in the space of agroecology and someone who restructured her entire life from working in law and doing what society told her she, she should do to shedding her suburban life, working with the land. And she really shares beautifully her story from turning her back on a secure income and turning to a different story and reconnecting with her passion and nature. It was such a wonderful way to finish the episode and I'm so happy that these conversations were bookended by two amazing women and change makers in Marie and Venetia. This episode really has everything. It's got life changes, indigenous perspective, wild foods and ideas, Blair swears and goes on a rant, I inhale one of Joel's dried crickets, there's all sorts of stuff going on in the background and I really hope it gives you multiple perspectives from some incredible change makers in our food system. So please enjoy these conversations with guests from the National Sustainable Living Festival's Great Local Lunch. you need all right marie and charlie Hello. so nice to be here with you <laughs> so nice to be here with you too beautiful day Hi, james <laughs> and um just, Char- relax, just relax a bit mate come on yeah just relaxing on the couch <laughs> charlie i gotta say in the short um life of this podcast you're the first and only um, multiple guest so far. A very exclusive club. <laughs> so I can't. Back. Oh, well, I'm looking forward to having more chats, James. We had a lovely chat there some months ago, and in, I'm in the shed. Yeah, yeah, in the shed. That was really mm. good setup. Lovely setup. Thanks. Uh, and now you guys are doing some really exciting stuff, Marie. <laughs> I might ask you to open up. So, uh, as you guys know, the 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 theme of the show, the inspiration of the show, is the overview effect, which is this paradigm shift that astronauts describe when they they first view earth and feel this overwhelming sense of kind of connection to humanity and our earth and our planet and i love that concept because it's an impetus to do something you know meaningful and impactful on the world and from my understanding you guys are starting this this new series eat dirt which isn't just a isn't just an entertainment show it has a bit of a a purpose behind it as well. So you can can you introduce what Eat Dirt is and why, more importantly, you guys are doing it? Yeah, sure. Um, before I do, I just want to acknowledge that I'm on Arakwal country here um, and that there's a millennia-old um, and evolving legacy of storytelling that exists, cultivation, custodianship. And so I'm carrying that in my cells and listening deeply um, as we have this conversation, James. So thank you so much for having me. Um, Eat Dirt is an impact production, so it's a vehicle for messaging that's going to lead to meaningful action. So under our current food production system, we have about 60 years of topsoil remaining. That's according to a UN report um, on the state of our world soil resources from 2015. So it's a pretty conclusive report, 60 years of topsoil remaining. Why does that matter to people? It matters because we need topsoil to grow our food. We need it for lots of reasons. So a farmer, Charlie Arnott, a feeder, Clayton Donovan, and myself, I'm the eater, I have the best job. We're on a mission to find out how we can make sure that in 60 years' time, Australia can still grow its own food and beyond that, have a resilient, resourceful next generation who can be healthy and robust and meet the challenges of an increasingly uncertain future and uncertain world. Amazing. Sounds amazing. <laughs> and it's, it's great that you're highlighting, I mean, even in the name, Eat Dirt, but you're really highlighting that story about soil because it's unbelievable we don't think about it that those few centimeters of soil impact below ground impact everything we do above ground they're what makes the world go round yeah so it all comes back to to soil and i love that you're you're anchoring it in that that messaging and that purposeful starting point yeah um i mean charlie perhaps you can talk to um in our last conversation you shared your experience on your farm and watching your paddock 
mm. blow away before you transition to practices that actually cared for the soil. How have you seen this movement grow and, and what are you trying to, in your experience with this show, what, what messaging and what, what kind of impact are you trying to have? Well, uh, uh, just back to the, the, the soil, I mean, it, yes, I did see our paddocks blow away and it was dirt then, it was blowing away, you could hardly have called it soil, given the, the practices we'd engaged in, not just our family for many years, but previous generations. So, you know, my, um, my focus from that point on really became about how can I improve the quality and the quantity of soil because, you know, as I say it, um, uh, you know conferences and so on you know put your hand up if you eat food everyone on this planet eats food you know and so we don't you know this impact production is as much about identifying to people the importance of food not just how it's growing but the nutritional content of it because you know we've got some pretty serious global issues that we are as a species needing to address you know one being the 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 global um environmental issue you know climate change um 60 years left of the soil um, and so on, and also you know, the human health um, side of it as well. So, you know, mm. clean, nutritious food grown in environmentally and regenerative ways. Um, you know, that's, that's what we're, that's what we're den- identifying and, and focusing on. Yeah. And I love the way that you talk because you talk about um, we all eat food. You know, we're, we're a species. You, you, you talk in a way that is us together and not divisive. I think um, there are in the past there are pockets of for example the environmental activist movement that have perhaps laid some blame at the feet of farmers um and 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 charlie and and marie yourself you both have a way of cutting through to both the kind of progressive environmental thinkers as well as perhaps maybe some of the more traditional conservative farming communities and is this really what this show is about is really trying to bring everyone together over a common cause yeah Absolutely. Look, I've spent a lot of time on country with traditional owners and with farming communities. And I know that one thing that unites both of those very diverse, you know, groups of people is that the stories, livelihoods, Mm. histories, futures lay in country. And there are legacies of being custodians, you know, and... They are also the communities who are already our first refugees due to climate change. So we're now at a tipping point in humanity and in biodiversity where people are no longer going to be able to be siloed. We need to work Mm. together in a united way towards this common goal of survival and um, resilience not just for us human animals but for all biodiversity that supports life on earth and a lot of that biodiversity actually is underneath our feet it's not just what we see above the ground so that's why we want to take this messaging out of not just privileged communities but into the suburbs where Mm. maybe people don't know what the word regenerative means or you know need more options and to buy food that's healthy for their families and healthy for the planet amazing and also just to add to that uh, you know one of our focuses is, is is and certainly mine has always been not to make people wrong and not to sort of um create um you know not to create an us and them type of mentality this is we're all in this together you know i used to do things i'm i'm ashamed of as a farmer um and the only person i criticize is myself you know but 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 even that i mean you were just doing what you were asked to do you know this idea that you were actively going out there and trying to do the wrong thing is crazy Mm. it's crazy Mm. that we silo each other into those different into those different camps isn't it yeah i think we're at a really interesting time where people are being asked to look at themselves and what they've learned there's a great unlearning happening across many communities and we're being asked to understand our privilege we're being asked to understand what we've learned and i think we need to be able to lean into the discomfort of going oh i i can't actually support how I was doing things I my values have shifted because I know differently now Mm. but I really love the phrase that we do better when we know better and that's not a passive phrase there's still a level of proactive um, self-consciousness and self-investigation there you know and allowing of feedback but we do better when we know better and Mm. I think that's a great you know it's a great message 
And just to add to that too, I think you know we we know better when we ask better questions, you know, and and we haven't. I, I know I didn't ask myself appropriate questions, you know, until more recently, and I think you know again that this impact production is about, um, you know, framing up questions to get people to really think hard about you know their behaviours and the, and you know social trends and and history. So um, yeah, the more the more questions, the better. Mm. Awesome. It sounds amazing. Um, can you can you just let us know if anyone's interested how they can access it when where how is it going to go live? We're we're not live yet. We're certainly collecting a lot of footage um, even today, um, and have uh, over the last twelve months. We are in a, um, a sort of a pre-production period um, at the moment. Uh, we've got um, Instagram handles eat dot dirt. Um, series and you can follow us there um, and we are collecting we've, we've, we've put together our episodes and we're really at the moment collecting um, more information opportun- identifying opportunities um, time frames are um, uh, a, a bit of a moving feast at the moment but we're really pumped um, Clay and Marie and I and Sue Bradley who's helping us as well behind the scenes as a co-producer we've got a wonderful team and we're really excited and I think this will be a world first in, in this sort of format mm. and, and, and getting this sort of message out there Awesome. Well, Charlie, thank you again, not just for your time, for coming on the show again, and Marie, um, but also for, for the work you guys are doing. It's, uh, it's really awesome. I can't wait to check it out. Uh, and James, thank you for the work you're doing. We're, we're co-podcasters, and I really supportive of what you're doing, and I think you know, the, the more messages and stories and impact we can have using this medium, I think it's just, it, it can't be a bad thing. It's a very intimate, very storytelling-driven medium, which is what I think the world needs more of right now. Less clickbait, more proper conversations. So, totally. Yeah, anyone um, who, who hasn't checked out Charlie's Regenerative Journey, highly recommend going and checking that one out as well. James, thank you. And let's do this a third time somewhere. Oh, why not? <laughs> Stay ahead of the pack, Charlie. Awesome. Love Charlie you. Marie, Th- thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity, James. Pleasure. Good on you. Cheers. Roger, Roger Moore is James Bond. So. He's the only one? No, he wasn't the only James Bond. No, I know, but like in your mind, was he the best? No, no, I think probably Sean Connery yeah, was the best. Yeah, the classic. He yeah. had the whole schmoozer down yes. pat. He just had, he was charismatic and cool. Yeah, I agree. He was great. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So... Peter, thanks for dropping no in for a James. quick little chat. Yeah. Uh, so we're here at the Great Local Lunch yep. as part of the Sustainable Living Festival. Yep. And um, it's been great to meet you and hear about what you're doing. But I wondered if you might be, be happy to share kind of who you are and your background and okay. what you do and why you're here. Yeah. So I, I'm a, a wild food researcher. And I started doing that in my late teens, um, which is, I'm, a, I'm an old fart. So basically we're talking sort of 1977. I got this idea in my head to start researching native foods really seriously because people were saying that there's nothing of value in the rainforest and we had to chop it down Mm. uh, to make value out of it. And I thought, geez, don't they realise that there's all these potential food crops in there? Because the macadamia had already come out of the rainforest. So I was very interested in using native foods as a way of getting people to understand and appreciate the importance of our native natural ecosystems as a source of food and all sorts of other things, because all our food originally comes from the wild. Yeah. It's all wild food plants, you know, even wheat, <laughs> you know, it's highly hybridized. But, you know, every single food plant had a wild ancestor that came from the natural ecosystem. Yes. And so that's, that's what you do now. You, you, yeah, I've you, been doing it for nearly 40, what is it, 44 <laughs> years, something ridiculous, yeah. Wow. And so just how many plants out there are are edible and that we don't know about that we don't have i mean i guess you said you can go in there and maybe see because you've got that lens but how many of us don't have that filter and are just missing so many edible plants look many many more times um, than than the number of plants that we use as standard food items you know we're surrounded by food all the time it's we're literally walking over it's it's growing in our lawns you know like it might be an edible grass, it might be clover. You can eat the leaves of clover, though I wouldn't eat too much, you know. But there's, there's tons of food all around us. Mm. And, um, you know, in the weeds, as well as in the bush. And so, um, 
it, it's far more diverse than what we use. Mm. And it, it, it really has, um, it, it, it introduces the potential to actually increase and diversify our food, especially as we go into more, maybe more difficult circumstances like climate change or um, depleted soils. Mm. Why do you think we haven't cultivated all of these foods? Or why do you think we're not even using the wild foods that go out there? What, what's, the, what's the barrier? Culture cultural you know it's what you're familiar with like what you grow up with and it's so interesting because i see some wild edible weeds like sow thistle there's a plant called sow thistle and i get the wild lettuce because i see the wild lettuce growing around as well and the wild lettuce is like a prickly thistle like you think to yourself how on earth did they develop the lettuce plant from this prickly thistle but they did. Mm. But then you see sow thistle and you say, surely this is a more obvious cho- choice. And in some cases, it's just kind of almost by chance. It's mm. like it's a very random thing. I mean, some food plants are standouts. Like I'm sure the original orange was a standout. I yes. was like, hey, you can't go past us. You know, <laughs> we've got wonderful, sexy orange fruit. But then other, other plants, it's like, how on earth did we get the lettuce from this prickly thistle? Mm. You know? So it is a very random thing. It's a very historically random thing. Mm, it's just the conditioning in which we've grown up around. Exactly. our only limitation that we've put on ourselves, really. Yeah, well, whatever's happened via food history. And, and can you tell me a little bit about, um, we, were, we were touching on before we hit record, um, that these, these wild plants, they're not only are we missing a food source, but they're actually play a role in being more sustainable and resilient and and why that is look it's extraordinary i mean the thing is all these wild food plants are growing without fertilizer and without pesticides Mm. there's no fungicide to control the disease there's no um fertilizer to make them grow like we've got like i say that wild ancestor of lettuce is growing on the side of the road no irrigation no fertilizer yes and, it, and somehow it's, we've lost that. The domestic lettuce mm. has lost the ability to extract the nutrients out of the soil because it's been, become so lazy because of domestication. So we've over-catered for these, um, what we know as fruits and veggies and, and plants and greens. Um, we've essentially um, coddled them yep. into reliance on us. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. And, and so what, I guess, what do you see in, in this space in terms of wild and forage food that, that excites you? Do you think that we are starting to see a bit of an upward trend or what are some interesting, exciting things in, in this space? Look, one of the things that's going on at the moment in restaurant scene, um, there's been a big movement the last 20 years. There's a bit of a, a movement on native foods in Australia in the 1980s, it's worth mentioning, and I was part of that. Mm. And what we're, but what we're seeing now is this engagement with wild foods as a new culinary um, kind of element. Mm. And that's sort of paving the way to a a broader conversation about the role of wild foods potentially for um, reducing our footprint on the earth Mm. and growing food more sustainably and growing food in places where we can't grow food at the moment. You know, I, I love... And I'm very fascinated with the plants that can grow in salty environments. Like we had some succulents on the on the lunch today mm. that that grow naturally in salty environments. Yes, and that's a sort of bringing the message right to the table, if you like, um, that there are f- food plants, and some of them are staple food plants as well, that can grow in salt affected country, and this is a huge issue especially for Australia, because mm. out west we've got you know, millions of hectares, literally, being, becoming salt-affected by the rising water tables because mm. the bush has been cleared. And, and so there's the opportunity to find plants that can actually grow in these places where food crops can't currently grow. Yeah, and, and that's not necessarily meaning that we're going to grow pig face all over the entire desert, but they could play a role in that first species to start to rebuild the soils in those areas that that as well but yeah. there is still the possibility like over in, in california they're growing a salt tolerant plant that they're watering with with seawater 
Oh, wow. And, and it's got, and they've developed it. They've had to do sort of, you know, a selection process to develop it. But it's got yields that are getting up towards um, soya bean. Wow. And they're growing it as, a, as a, a, a staple food source and an oil crop as well. So That's there's a possibility exciting. that some of these, if we really put our mind to it, we could actually get crops that can grow in salt-scalded country. Wow. And or even be irrigated with seawater. Wow, that's amazing. So it's, it's not just immediate food source that we're missing that we could be harvesting. Yeah. It also, uh, these wild foods can play a role in uh, more resilient farming and also rehabilitating. And rehabilitating, as you're saying as well. So if you want to, like they're doing that with uh, saltbush out west, they're yeah. planting saltbush for, um, but mainly as a grazing plant for for sheep. Yeah. yeah. But that's, that's fine. That's great. Yeah, wow. yeah. Wow. Okay. Peter, that's that's really exciting, and I, I really appreciate you dropping in to tell us Thanks, James. about all that. Pleasure and to I'm you. definitely going to learn more about these wild and foraged foods. So thank cool. you, thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. They say you got to lick the ice cream. You got to be close to the mic. Um, so yeah, on the couch we have Joel and Blair, Joel Orchard and Blair Beatty, both doing awesome stuff in the regenerative farming food production space um so blair start with you do you want to just give us a quick intro into i guess why you're here you know what what's your background what are you doing and what are you advocating for here that's an interesting (laughs) intro um why am i here no idea look (laughs) of my background is really quite diverse Let's say not not all of it of which I'm proud of, and <laughs> how did I end up here? Um, purpose, you know, when you finally find some purpose in your life, and um, through that purpose gives you gives you the opportunity to sit with amazing people and have great conversations, and the outcomes of those you know are going to be really going to sing true, and your heart lights up, and mm. that's why that's why I'm here, mate. You know, awesome. Uh, the big to sort of unpack what that is is I'm super keen to connect people to their food, mm. and in doing that, we'll change our food system because the one we've got right now is fucking broken. Can yep. I swear? Sorry, yeah, you yeah, might have to edit for that it. out. Potty mouth. No, do it. So my role in that is is to do my do whatever it is I see best and can can deliver on around changing hearts and minds where their food comes from does that mean it's meeting their farmer does that mean we're educating them about the realities of pesticide and chemical use or petrochemical use Mm. Um, is it talking about nutrient profiles and how what we put in our body actually has quite a profound effect on our bodies Mm. is it looking at our medical system and our health system and trying to understand why doesn't anyone talk about our immune system and what health is and why is it you go to I'm going to go on a rant now okay, why why is it. it you go to it doesn't <laughs> take me long why is it you go to hospitals and they feed you yes. substandard food like there's all these checkpoints all these things that you uh, you see in your life and you don't understand why that's happening it's because it's broken and we need to fix it and sitting around with a bunch of growers that produce food and live in harmony with earth and listen to to nature mm. and grow in accordance to those beautiful that beautiful practice then you you can see that there is hope and there is a way forward and that pathway is just changing the practices we utilize to grow our food Love it. And Great. from that, you've got all this. I'm not going to stop. So you, you wanted to stop me then, but it's not going to happen. From that, from that, you get healthy plants, healthy animals, healthy people, and if we need it, a healthier planet. Totally. It's that simple. Not very. It's very complex and it's very beautiful because that's the way it should be, but that can sort of sum it up mm. reasonably well, clearly. I love it. I love that. I could not have said it better myself. You um, already have earlier today, though. <laughs> yeah, I'll splice. I'll splice it out. Sorry. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but and and I guess the I, I love that, and I love that you framed up your intention and your motivation, and you know you're following your your purpose. And on the ground here, some of the stuff that you are involved in is harvest, 
Harvest, yep, the restaurant, the beautiful restaurant. Um, you were also involved in 96 Bangalore. Um, these projects to, that to me, you're, you're kind of like, maybe kind of like the glue, trying to bring the consumer together with the, the grower and trying to connect people with where the food's coming from. Would you say that's some of the role that you're currently playing? It's interesting because I, yeah, I haven't really thought about is that the role, but yeah, it is, and it's probably getting even more pointy that role at the moment with Farmer's Footprint. Mm. So t- can, you tell me, can you tell me about that? What is Farmer's Footprint and so what's what, in the works? What does it want to do? It wants to amplify the regenerative story around our food systems. They shine the light on the guys that are doing amazing work in this country. Um, it's a not-for-profit. It's actually a charity in the States, which was the brainchild of a guy called Zach Bush, it's been now. It's now grown into its own entity, mm. um, and is playing a really, a really beautiful role over there. What I'm doing here is opening up what is, I guess, the Australian chapter of it that can tell the Australian story with the Australian nuance. And there's so many stories to tell. Mm. And wh- where we want to point it towards is consumers, and our four pillars are around awareness, education economy and policy so the first two being the foremost for the first 12 months is my imagine imagine as my imagination would see it um and also at the same time as creating this awareness and this want and desire to learn more is building a really robust um resources page Mm. um portal more so than a page it'll be rather robust so anyone that hears this story can plug in and find their way if that's a consumer, if that's a backyarder, if it's a small-scale producer, or if it's a large-scale producer, a monocropper that wants to learn more about how what better practice might looks like, look looks like, and so our responsibility in that is to hold the hand and show them the way. Mm. We we're not the guys that are they're the educators. We're the guys that create that conversation Mm. so in what you said that's kind of the role that we want to play in the first you know this first iteration of what farmers footprint is awesome and if people want to find out more about that where can they go Uh, farmersfootprint.us is the current site we'll be building out an australian uh, something similar in in an australian version um and yeah we're we're aiming to be a charity we've Gone th- going through that application at the moment so it'll be run basically on people's support company support um and we'll uh yeah hopefully get to build a team out that can do the good work over the coming months awesome so good blair thank you thank you for sharing that pleasure with us. mates nice to sit with you yeah cheers and uh and now over to joel joel you're a, a small scale farmer but also a a community advocate you pull together various farming groups as well can you give us a bit of background to who you are and and some of your work uh yeah so i guess i'm in blair's camp with trying to be a change maker really i think um you know together with all of the people who have come here today we recognize there's some fairly sort of systemic issues with Mm. the way that we produce food the way that we consume food the way that food comes to us um so i'm really interested in a whole systems view of it all um, and I'd like to be tangibly involved in that as a small-scale producer myself. Mm. Um, and I'm really interested in sort of novel food production systems, looking at urban farming and sort of unique elements. Um, yeah. As we sort of just tried, I've been growing some crickets, edible <laughs> crickets from home. Yeah. Um, and I grow mushrooms in a shed in, in my backyard that we ate for lunch today. So, so good. So The sorts of things that we can all have some experience without trying to demystify some of those things Mm. Um, and I'm also really passionate about addressing this sort of aging farmer um, demographic issue Um, so from a social sustainability perspective and how we can provide support frameworks for the new generation of primary producers that from where I'm sitting are coming with this a whole new language around land stewardship and caring for the environment Mm. and they tackle farming from a from a quite a different perspective with a whole lot more of sort of community care involved in, in the way that they look at mm. uh, localised food economies and yeah, strengthening nutrition for their communities. Yeah. And so one of the one of the organisations that you're uh, heavily involved with or, or, or chair even is Young Farmers Connect. Is that right? Yep. So can you tell me a little bit about Young Farmers Connect and 
um, I guess as a bit of a leading question, why why do you think there is this um, age gap or at least this stereotype of the, the kind of old farmer? Why, why, why are we not seeing young farmers or as many young farmers as we would like enter the industry? Mm, I mean, it, the issue is complex and it, it's something we've looked at as a network now for about five years. Uh, so when I got started as a young farmer myself, I realised that there really wasn't a support platform for new farmers and especially farmers like myself that are first generation farmers so I haven't inherited a family farm or I haven't Mm. grown up on a family farm Um, I wanted to get into the industry from scratch and we realized there's a whole lot of barriers that are in the way for someone who wants to try that Um, and so we started a network initially it was locally um, to try and provide some peer support and to understand that those barriers were common to everyone and we could look at those together Mm. Um, and looking at shifting the culture of farming, which has always been quite competitive to being something that's much more collaborative, um, mm. and looking at, well, how do we build support networks that work together for each other? Um, and obviously that kind of an idea was popular enough that other chapters of this Young Farmers Connect organisation have grown, and I think now we have 15 chapters around Australia. Wow. Um, and thousands of young farmers that are interested in being involved in collectively sharing stories and supporting each other and sharing information and problem solving um Mm. you know everything from tips and tricks about what weeds are giving them grief or what pests are causing them problems or how to get their products to market or you know there's so many things that we can talk about which supports industry rather than everyone sort of fighting for the same piece of the pie yes that competitive mentality yeah, isn't which I think it's become a part of the problem of agriculture itself. Totally. You know, we've been pushed into commodities instead of growing food, and that becomes competitive. Yep. Um, and as you've pointed out, the the collective idea of what we have of a farmer is is typically it's an old white man, and we know from our network that that simply isn't the case anymore. We have more members that are young female farmers than male farmers, mm. um, and they're really the shifting face of what food production is now, mm. uh, and it's really exciting to see. That is, that is. And when you, what I'm hearing as well is that when you get these farmers that aren't competitive and more collaborative, they're starting to approach farming from a different perspective. So rather seeing it as a, a resource to be extracted from, mm. they're approaching it as a way of, of nurturing the soil and being a custodian of that land of which food then grows. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, and as Blair was speaking to as well, there's a real shift in our culture around food happening at the moment. And Perhaps at some scales it looks very small, but it's really powerful, this whole regenerative farm practice, Mm. um, a whole shift in in the way that we look at food as not something that just sits on the table. It's not just, you know, white bread and butter anymore. We really want to know the story of who grew the food, where did it come from, what were the practices that the farmer used to grow that food, what was then the carry-on effects to the environment and the ecosystem. And we've also got all these young farmers that are really interested in preserving biodiversity. Um, mm. You know, the bushfires and coronavirus highlighted some really strong issues around community resilience and food security. Um, you know, and in making sure that those things are going are future-proofing our, our food system instead of it just being on a one-year annual turnover. And if you yes. get drought next year, then that's it. Um, yeah. We need to look at systems that give us perpetuity. Awesome. That's so good. And guys, uh, thank you not only for dropping in and having this chat <clears throat> with me today, but oh my gosh, <coughs> I inhaled a cricket. Um, but <coughs> but yeah, thank you for, it's been, it's been a pleasure to sit and chat with you today, but also thank you so much for the work you're doing with your community groups, the work you're doing, you know, inspired by better food. Um, better health, better society. It's it's great that there are guys like you out there doing this work. So thanks, pleasure, pleasure. Cheers, guys. All right, cool. So, Jacob, thanks for uh, dropping in and having a quick quick chat with me. No worries. Uh, it's been awesome to meet you and connect and hear all the really awesome work that everyone here today is doing. It's really inspiring um, and you're no different. So could you, could you give us a bit of a background into what you're doing, the work that you're doing and um, I guess why you're doing it as well, why it's important to you? Uh, um, yeah, so my name is Jacob Birch. Um, I'm a Gamilaroi First Nations person. 
Um, I'm doing some research and academic work out of Southern Cross University here in Lismore. So my research is on native grains and my academic work is with the new Regen Ag degree. Mm. Um, anyway, the reason I'm here today is to share what I've been doing on the native grains. And so f- this is all based on the knowledge that for at least 60,000 years, our people have been eating these grains um, all across Australia, dozens of different species. Um, so I've done a nutritional profile on seven different species that cover the entire country of Australia, every bioregion. Wow. Um, so stuff from the north, stuff from the south, stuff from the desert. Um, and mostly I've just looked at the nutritional profiles, so like carbohydrates, protein, fatty acid profiles, um, mm. micronutrients, min- um, macronutrients and some bioactive compounds like the phenolics. Yeah, and then on the side of that, I've also sort of been looking into the the more cultural side of it and the ethical side of engaging in this space. So try and understand how someone like myself, who is First Nations but also a researcher, like how can I do this this sort of work appropriately, culturally inclusive and appropriate. Um, mm. Because like, at the end of the day, we don't want to see this stuff being another bush food that's not in the hands of our mob. Like, mm. I think about 1% to 3% of the profits of the bush food industry actually go back to Aboriginal people in wow. Australia. So we've, just like <clears throat> with everything else in our society, we've commercialised and commoditised these traditional foods yeah um, Mm. sort of taken the biocultural knowledge and done what yeah sort of done things without involving the traditional owners of these of this knowledge Um, Mm. yeah all sorts of yeah, stuff historically and still happens today I guess so I was re- really interested to explore that space as well and just yeah that, that's sort of this, these grains have so much potential like for land um, regeneration so regenerating degraded soils and that sort of thing like we're talking about looking at the potential of certain species to remediate um, salinity mm. um and the nutritional profiles are awesome, but yeah, to to see mob going ahead with this first, yes, um, yeah, so that's pretty much what I've been thinking is, about and looking into. Is that something that you personally have have struggled with or contemplated the challenge of being in a, uh, I guess a, a westernized um, system of you know research and university. Uh, and then also trying to tie that in with your traditional mm. and your cultural heritage and what you're trying to do. Have you had internal conflict and dialogue around that? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's quite difficult because sort of as a scientist, you just train to just ask questions and answer them. Um, you don't really have to take into the into consideration the ethical things. Like the, yes. as a scientific point of view, like there's questions that need to be answered and that's it like you're an objective scientist yes um so yeah i sort of did have to decolonize my my thinking um Mm. and yeah I've, i've sort of found there's a lot of um conflicts even between like ethical stuff and so like academia protocols and cultural protocols um, so it is a quite difficult space to navigate and it's like it's, yeah I was considering at one point to not even talk about the species like say wow um, yeah 
just sort just of so that so that other researchers or other industry didn't try to take it and essentially roll with it and yeah that was my fear it. similar yeah. to like um say kakadu plum but they found it had the highest vitamin c of any um known fruit and then next thing you hear people are going into the forest and cutting down 50 year old trees just to get a handful yes. of fruit um on the getting on the black market it's a really it, it's it's actually something i hadn't considered and hearing you speak it's a really really valid really important mindset because we've seen it all over the world with coffee and chocolate where um indigenous communities and that where that food is native to get almost none of the benefit and it's just extracted as part of the big capitalist industry so yeah i'm really glad that you've raised that that's uh, i'm really glad that's at your forefront the forefront of your mind yeah nice cool that's got that's that's got a, a huge impact so we've got to think about not only these amazing grains that have the ability to have a great nutrient density and um, regenerative uh, qualities with the land, but it's our intent behind them and mm. our approach to using them and holding them with um, respect and respecting the indigenous cultures that are, are responsible for yeah. being the custodians of them. Yep. Yeah. It's like... And like you say, this the nutrient density in this stuff, like this stuff is medicine and that's like I'd, I guess there's no no holding it. Like um the the gap is growing. It's not getting any better, it's getting worse. Um mm. uh, so this stuff is medicine and with medicine like you, you treat your most vulnerable population. Um So yeah, like I I see it as yeah, medicine healing. Mm. healing our country healing our people yeah and as a as a scientist where we're told to be objective and to be neutral to the outcome but you can't be you you've got to be emotionally attached you've got to be connected to your food and your mm. land and your place yeah yeah that's sort of i i um use like the uh quantum mechanics analogy so I don't know how true it is, but they it, it says that an object that obse- is observed reacts differently to when it's not observed. Yes. So even as a scientist, you are not objective. You, you are affecting the outcomes for everything. I think probably the only scientific discipline that would be objective would be mathematics. Everything else is being influenced. Mm. Um and that, that's sort of like, for me, my interpretation of a, of a, from a First Nations perspective is like, everything you come across is reacting to you. So, so there's no, no mistakes. Everything's being revealed for a purpose. Mm. It's almost like, these quantum mechanic theories that are just emerging are rediscovering what the wisdom that are many of our First Nations people already knew. Possibly. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jacob, uh, mate, <laughs> that's uh, you've you've actually had a profound impact on me just in these last ten minutes. So thank you, oh, not thank just you. for your time and sitting down, but also for sharing that perspective and and the work that you're doing which is really important I really appreciate it mate I appreciate the chance thank you cheers man Yeah, I'll ask you a couple of questions and just kind of elaborate on... Okay, and I can just kick off wherever I feel like Go it wherever you want. You can swear, <laughs> you can rant, whatever you want to. Get on my soapbox. Great. <laughs> um, cool. So, Venetia, thank you for dropping in for a quick chat. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, no worries. Uh, mm. It's been great to connect and, mm. and have these amazing conversations with people and learn their stories today, mm. which is really what I'm trying to share here. So, um, could you kind of give us a little bit of... a background into what you do especially mm-hmm. in, in the world of food which is mm. the theme today mm. and um, I guess even more importantly why you do it and why it means so much to you okay yeah absolutely I'd love to share that so I'll start with where I am and then I'll talk a bit about how I got there 
Um, I'm currently helping to manage a two-acre agroecology garden at the farm in Byron Bay. I work for Hungry Earth Agroecology and I've been there for almost two years now and this is my first foray into professional growing or farming. Um, uh, I'll keep talking about, actually I'll keep going on on the, the patch. So it's an agroecology is all about food production paired with sort of um, mimicking natural succession or forest systems, basically working with the process of nature to grow food and not against it. So we don't use any chemicals, we use a successional system um, and we grow a radical diversity of food from all of your market garden varieties right through to um, long-term tree crops, nuts, avocados, jabotti carvers, star fruit, uh, abos, bananas, macadamias wow. I think are in there too. <laughs> all these trees are really small, they're kind of tucked in. Um, so we're kind of doing land regeneration paired with primary production. So we're growing long-term trees. We've even got eucalypts, um, bunyas, hoop pines, pencil pines, lots of native species. All inter interspersed. All interspersed wow. in this one garden. So at the moment, these trees are quite small. The system's only about two and a half years old. Um, but as they get up and shade out, um, the interrows we have where we're growing our market garden vegetables we're going to have to stop producing those quick annuals and just let these big trees grow into the forest that they're mm. trying to do. So it's a really experimental way of uh, yeah. sort of growing food and regenerating landscapes at the wow. same time. And so is the idea that so once those, um, those rainforest trees or those big, those yeah. big trees establish, yeah. you can then move on to a That's new right. patch yes. and start growing food, produ like getting immediate production out of it and then yes. also regenerating it at the same time. That's right. And you start the system all over again. So, wow. And that's a part of this idea of succession, which mm. mimics what happens in nature um, and the evolution of rainforest. Where I am, we're growing on the red soils um, uh, just outside of Byron Bay. And, you know, this is a microclimate adapted to growing rainforest. Mm. So that's what this landscape quite naturally wants to do. Mm. And we really hold it back, keeping it in that early successional stage by growing pasture all over it. Yes. Like it really wants to throw up trees. So that's what we're letting it do. And, wow. um, yeah, so this is the first garden that we've played with. And I work with some really inspiring... Um, growers, Evan and Banya, and Evan's a really accomplished market gardener, and Banya is an extraordinary ecologist and permaculture teacher, and the two of them have kind of jammed together mm. to make this amazing garden, and it's, yeah, it's a real, it's a real pleasure and privilege for me as a complete novice <laughs> to be able to kind of manage this system, so... It's That's been so a good. baptism by fire. So what, I'm curious, to, mm. what got you in to farming then? Yeah. And, and really, as a, as a young farmer, yeah. I mean, the, because yeah. you know, I was speaking to Joel about this a bit yeah. earlier, what, farming or traditional farming or industrial farming is yeah. really kind of old white guys. Mm. <laughs> mm. But we're seeing this new generation of enthusiastic um, farmers taking a different approach. How did you... Yeah, it's, it's quite a, it's a really new culture that's coming through in the agriculture scene in Australia, which is exciting. Um, I have no exposure or background or experience in farming or growing <laughs> before I took this job. I grew up in the suburbs of Melbourne and Sydney and I was, I went to uni, I studied law and business management and then I worked in law for about five years um, and the whole way through... I was just kind of following that cultural narrative of like to succeed in this world you have to study you have to get a good job you have to make money to support mm. yourself and there didn't seem to me to be much wiggle room in that and I had to support myself through uni there was no fallback or plan b so kind of from a space of what felt like terror. <laughs> I kind of persisted with my studies because if I didn't make money, then I felt like, yeah, it felt like an, an almost 
the threat of death. Like, how was I going to mm. pay my rent next week? How was I going to support myself through life? Yeah. And you develop a bit of a sunk cost bias as you go along. You know, you've, you're three years into a degree. Oh, just another two more years and you'll be finished. And then yes. come this far, I might as well do my, my practical legal, legal training. And I've come this far, I might as well practice. And, you know, and you just get deeper and deeper and deeper in. Oh, I've got $65,000 worth of hex debt. Yes. Better keep going so I can pay that off. But the further I, the longer I stuck with it, just the more miserable I became. Mm. And I was absolutely miserable Wow! by the time I was a few years into my legal career. And most of the people I worked with were also absolutely miserable. Yeah. It feels like the only reason we were all doing it was so we could have some kind of secure income. Yes. And everything that felt true to me in life and felt real to me... Um, told a very different story about how to live it was all all my experiences in the natural world I loved hiking and camping I loved pottering in the garden when I was at university mm. I lived in West End in Brisbane and in one of my share houses there we had chickens that kind of ran wild through the streets and I had a very unproductive but overworked garden and yep. I loved that like that was my the best time of my week it's crazy that we, we, we work all week, we spend the majority of yeah. our lives doing a job we don't like so that in yeah. our little moments of leisure time, exactly. we can hike or camp or yeah. fish or garden. Yeah, exactly. And I went on a holiday in, oh man, it would have been about 2015. It was a really big trip. I went overseas. It was huge. It was exciting. It was thrilling. And I came back at the end of it quite exhausted. And then I had to go back to my job. And I thought, oh, this is just awful. And I decided then that I wanted a job that I didn't feel like I needed to take a holiday from. Like, mm. I want my whole life to be a labor of passion and love. You know, why should I want to escape it? That's what we'd talk about in the lunchroom was like, oh, our next holidays, how are we going to get out of this crap? You know? Yes. So, and growing and gardening, um, food production, rethinking the way we do agriculture. Um, re-looking at our health, just redoing everything basically as a culture from the ground up seemed necessary. And so I went back to uni. I ended up studying a graduate certificate in permaculture through Central Queensland University, which was an amazing um, course, no longer offered, sadly. It was really, mm. really cool. And it was a bit of a paradigm shifter for me. Mm. And after I did that, I was so primed. It's just like so ready to just like break up with modern life mm. and that bullshit story. And so I did. I quit my job. I packed up my house. I had about 2000 bucks in the bank. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I just sent out a heap of emails and text messages to just get any experience I could in gardening, farming, growing. I actually had no idea what I was going to do. Wow. And it was just by total fluke that I ended up being connected with Evan at the farm. I saw the garden those guys were doing there, flew up from Sydney to volunteer for two weeks and, yeah, stayed there wow. ever since. Two years on, I'm helping to run it. Yeah. That's amazing. I, <laughs> I didn't know your backstory. Oh, right. Even having met you before. <laughs> so that's incredible. And yeah. It's it's uh, a beautiful story of just taking that first step, you know, mm. just willing to take the mm. plunge, mm. Um, being brave enough to do that. Mm. But also, it sounds like when you when you align yourself to what you truly want, when you yeah. find that within yourself, it yeah. sounds like people start helping you get there. It was like I can only describe it as just magic it was just like total cosmic shit kept unfolding every single day mm. the second i was just like nah i'm done with this i'm gonna i i live within my integrity or i die like that's how it felt and um the second i made that really firm decision and stuck with it all of these opportunities just kept on unfolding in the most wow. radically magic way i mean 
essentially I'm a landless peasant farmer. Let's not <laughs> over-glamorise what I'm doing. <laughs> but Let's glamorise that. That shit needs to be gl- glamorised. I describe it as um, surfing in Byron, like S-E-R-F-I-N-G. <laughs> um, and it's hard work. It is mm. such unbelievably hard work. I never knew how much goes into growing real food. It's been unbelievably humbling. Um, But yeah, ever since I've kind of decided to undertake this journey, I've had nothing but the most overwhelming support from people around me, gratitude from the people who buy our food. And Mm. yeah, I feel so alive. Like I feel radically alive. It's awesome. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. Uh, I could talk to you so much more about that. Perhaps we should. <laughs> yeah. Um, but for now, thank you so much for dropping in and sharing mm. that story because um, not only is it amazing the work you're doing mm. with you know, regenerating landscapes and mm. um, ethical and sustainable food production, but also mm. sharing your personal story like that is mm. really important. And I hope it definitely struck a chord with me and I hope um, and I know that other listeners will resonate with that and I think you'll inspire a lot of people with that story. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's my absolute pleasure. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers.